Indeed, and may that be your heart's cry as well, regardless of if you had a, a good week full of all sorts of joys, or whether you've had uh, a more difficult or challenging week, may you be able to say, Christ, be magnified in my life, and that ought to be the firm foundation upon which we do build our lives. And as we get started, I want to introduce you to a bird this morning. I want to introduce you to, maybe you've heard of him already, this is the Takahe right here. It's a very, it's a very pretty bird, wouldn't you say so? I know the, the uh, projectors don't do it the appropriate amount of justice, but the Takahe is native to New Zealand, and it's got this wonderful blue plumage that fades into this greens that has elements of purples, some blacks as well. It was actually on the brink of extinction. They thought it was extinct for a period of time, and then it made a miraculous comeback. And it's, uh, it's native to the South Island of New Zealand. It carries a great deal of significance to the Maori people, those who are uh, respectively indigenous to that area. But it's virtually, this Takahe, indistinguishable from the Pukeko. So the Pukeko, you can see, has a, a longer neck, but it has the same color beak, has the same color feet. Even the shape of the beak is by and large the same. That beautiful blue plumage and fades into to black for the Pukeko. But they, they are virtually indistinguishable by way of their looks. They're often mistaken one for another. And to the untrained eye, even their mannerisms can be quite similar. They even have an analogous ring to their names to non-native speakers. So what's the major difference between the Takahe and the Pukeko? Well, the Pukeko can fly, the Takahe cannot I've always had a particular pity on flightless birds. I don't know if you feel the same way as I do. They're kind of like fish that can't swim in my mind. And though the topic we're going to be going into has little to do with birds and little to do with fish, it has everything to do with the appearance of a quality without having its most essential aspect, like a bird that cannot fly. As you may be aware, we concluded our walk through First Peter last week as Pastor Griner completed the letter on hope with enduring truths that stand firm, and as our passage concluded, even against our greatest adversary, Satan. But our hope is never static, and hope itself is never static. Hope is always moving, and those in pursuit of hope ought to always be changing and seeking to conform to Christ as well. And that's why our summer series will serve as a pretext to Second Peter. So we're eventually going to be getting into Second Peter as we concluded First Peter, but we're going to have a bit of an introduction to that. And we're going to divide our summer series into two parts. The latter half is going to contain spiritual gifts, and we'll walk through various spiritual gifts. But the first half of our series together will cover hope for fruitful service. This will be based off of First Peter, or Second Peter, rather, chapter one, verses five through seven. So first, Second Peter, I'm going to do that a lot today. Second Peter, chapter one, verses five through seven contains seven elements of a Christian. And if we were to try to handle that in just a single Sunday and do those seven elements any justice, they're effectively a building list one off of another, we wouldn't be able to do it effectively. So this summer, we're going to take each one individually, and we're going to talk about that particular attribute. And I'll show its significance later, why it's good to walk through these matters. Because verse 4 
the verse immediately preceding these seven attributes gives a, a bit of a provocative statement, if I may be so scandalous to say so. It says this, for by God's glory and excellence, so by God's attributes, who he is, he has granted to us, those in Christ, his precious and magnificent promises. It's like he can't throw enough adjectives in this. His precious and magnificent promises so that, what is the purpose of these promises? What are these promises accomplishing? So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Don't let that last part pass you by. That ought to be a little bit shocking. It, it ought to even have a little bit of a, a squirming nature for those who have a good theology, become partakers of the divine nature, but it's not calling us to be God. That phrase is unashamedly saying we are to be like God, which is certainly far better than the alternative to be unlike God. But what does it look like to become partakers of the divine nature? That ought to be the natural question that flows out of such a provocative statement Thankfully, the passage continues with our key verse for the summer. Verse is, which is 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence. So we are to be working and laboring hard for this. It is a, it is a false doctrine. It's called Keswick theology, to l- like let go and let God and believe that we are, have no, once God saves us, we have no role thereafter. Of course, justification means God has saved us once for all and there's nothing that we can do to contribute to our standing before a holy and righteous God. But does God want us to be passive in our Christian walk? No, even as Pastor Reader has, re- has just said, he effectively paraphrased Ephesians 4.1, work out uh, this salvation, walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. So Peter here is calling us to apply in all diligence, in your faith supply, and here are our seven attributes, moral excellence. And in that moral excellence, knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness, in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. You even see how they build one off of another and how it would be virtually impossible to preach that passage right there in and of itself. And the second characteristic is what we're going to be focusing in on this morning as we discuss growing in the fruit of knowledge. But for the first part of this series, so that was by way of introduction to this series, the first part of the series, we want to put flesh on the characteristic rather than just speak about these matters in theoretical terms. So to do that, we're choosing a biblical character to um, talk about the attribute at hand. Obviously, who would be, the, who would be the, the person who we could talk about for every single one of these? Jesus. He perfectly embodies every single one of these. After all, he is the divine person. And while we are to emulate Jesus in everything, we thought it'd be helpful to select a person to investigate that isn't Jesus, warts and all. For the characteristic of knowledge slash wisdom, who do you think embodies from that book sitting in your lap right now? Who do you think embodies that characteristic and that quality well? What came to our minds and might be coming to your minds as well? You can say it, who? Solomon, Solomon. I heard it murmured. Exactly. So I'd invite you to open to 1 Kings chapter 3. So yes, we are effectively in 1 Peter 
or second, see, I told you I'm going to do that a bunch. Second Peter 1, 5 through 7, and talking specifically about knowledge, but the passage we're mainly going to be settled in is second, first Kings. Look at me. I'm a mess. First Kings chapter 3, and we're going to be walking specifically looking at verses 6 through 9 together. And let me give you a bit of context as you're turning there. This is right after David's succession, and he had a pretty rough one at that as he's passing on the kingdom to his sons. One of his sons during his reign, Absalom, sought to usurp the throne and was eventually overtaken uh, in a pretty divine way. But then David nears the end of his life. He's had a a rough go at it since his sin with Bathsheba and killing uh, her husband, Uriah. And as he's on his deathbed, we've got this picture of King David, and it's an accurate picture by and large of a man after God's own heart. After all, that's how scripture describes him. And being a man after God's own heart, you might even have an image of how he would be um, giving his final words to the son who is going to be taking the throne. You, you imagine he would say something like, follow after the Lord with everything. Don't be you know, distracted. Don't allow, um, don't allow all the different sort of pleasures and don't allow all of these things that come with the kings or the pressure of being a king in, to draw you away from what really matters. But what does David say? I want you to kill these two guys. <laughs> That's what David says as he gives his final words to his, to his son. It's just a, a, a shocking picture of King David. So what does Solomon do as his first order of business when he becomes king? He kills three dudes. He kills one of his brothers who foolishly tries to take over the throne, and it was, it was probably a, an appropriate move. But then he offs Shimei, a guy who had done David pretty wrong uh, earlier in, in 2 Samuel 16, and then he kills Joab, who had, had killed Abner, another um, general in David's army, in cold blood. And so he offs these individuals who are kind of carryover from David's reign. And here he is. You've got this young reigning king, and he's sought to be faithful to the throne. He's shown a great deal of wisdom, and there has been rumblings of his knowledge and his wisdom and his capacity and ability uh, apart from this Uh, this narrative that we're about to go into, but that's the context leading into this. And so I'm even going to give a bit of a running start into our passage. So this is going to be 1 Kings chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Please follow along with me, if you will. Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, Uh uh-oh, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord in those days. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David. Isn't that beautiful? Except he sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon and sacrificed there. That's another high place, for that was the great high, pl- high place. Solomon offered, look how many, a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. You see, whatever Solomon does, he does it big. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. Hey, Solomon, I heard you, a thousand bulls. God asked, ask what you wish me to give you. Then, here's our passage for this morning. Then Solomon said, you have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, According as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you, and you have reserved for him this great loving kindness, and you have given him a a son to sit on the throne as it is this day. So look even where Solomon's focus is on the prayer. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about his father, and he's talking about the goodness that that the Lord has shown his father. So it's a very humble, very selfless prayer already that we see. Now, O Lord, 
my God. We see now Solomon engaging with his God. You have made your servant king. So again, placing it in humility. In place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or even counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? This is the word of the Lord that we're going to be walking through this morning. And with that context in mind, let's look at four truths about making every effort to add to your saving faith knowledge. And we're going to look specifically at the lens of Solomon's life. And as we see, God approached him, and Solomon does what is necessary initially, and that is ask for wisdom. And don't just ask for wisdom aimlessly ask God for wisdom. Let's start off by defining our words as is necessary. Sometimes it's helpful to understand a term by what it isn't. How do you define empty? By and large, you define it by what it isn't. It's something that isn't full. It doesn't contain something. Maybe it's a container or a receptacle that ought to be filled with materials, but it is not full. It is empty. Or even how do you define darkness? Darkness is the absence of light. So very often when you define a term, it's helpful to look at what it isn't to contribute to the thing that it is. So the same is for a complex attribute like knowledge or wisdom. Knowledge, wisdom, understanding, insight, these are words I'm gonna be using uh, intentionally, synonymously throughout our time this morning. They are interchangeably given throughout scripture and I don't wanna put too much weight on a particular word. So wisdom, knowledge, insight, understanding. Um, So what are some characteristics that are the opposite of someone who is wise, someone who is understanding, someone who is knowledgeable? What would be a characteristic and a quality of someone who is the opposite of that. I hope no one in particular is coming to your mind. But what we'd qualify them as being unwise, being foolish, or ignorant, possibly uninformed, impractical, so forth. Well, the definition that I'd suggest, and, and this is hopefully in line with our passage this morning, is this. Knowledge is the mental faculties, perspective, and information and impetus to lead to a life of godliness. So initially, it's necessary to have a functioning prefrontal cortex in order to be able to have knowledge and insight. We were talking cows earlier today. Cows don't have knowledge because they don't have the mental faculties to have knowledge or wisdom or insight. I've never met a wise cow myself. So it's necessary to have that. We also need to have perspective. And we're going to distinguish and differentiate between true knowledge and worldly knowledge. Perspective is necessary for true knowledge. It must be coming from an understanding that God is king, that he reigns. We even see Job, we see Solomon himself saying the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So perspective is entirely necessary for knowledge. Information, you can't know what you don't know. Solomon receives information from the Lord. He writes scripture, God's word. So he gets God's word imported into him and he records it. How do we get God's word? How do we get information, brothers and sisters? We read it. So you can't know God's word. You can't know this knowledge unless you actually input it into your heart. So information is necessary for it. And lastly, impetus in order to carry out a life of godliness is necessary for true knowledge. True knowledge is not static. True knowledge acts. It does things. So information just to sit there and know things is not true knowledge. It has to move. And notice also the unique purpose implied within this definition. 
to lead a life of godliness. This is not how the world would define knowledge. By their definition, knowledge would be synonymous with information, something that could be acquired with any textbook. What we're talking about today is true knowledge. So, where do we get this true knowledge? Well, as our text in our first heading would suggest, it's less of a get, like go out and get it, and more of a gift. It's less of a get and more of a gift. Long before Solomon walked the earth, Job uttered these profound words. He said, but where can wisdom be found? He had the same question. And where is the place of understanding? See him using the words interchangeably as well. Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. Where then does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? Thus, it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, with our ears, we have heard a report of it. So you can't take out a pickaxe and you can't start breaking up ground to find wisdom. You can't pull out your checkbook and write the appropriate amount to acquire it. And you can't work or travel or listen or talk endlessly to earn wisdom. Job moves on to the keeper of wisdom's storehouses. God understands its way. He knows its place. For he looks to the earth and sees everything under the heavens. And when he imparted the weight of the wind and meted out the waters by measure, then he set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt. Then he saw it and declared it. He established it and also searched it out. And to man he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. And while a whole sermon itself could be written off of this one passage, we see very clearly that wisdom is not gotten but given. And more specifically, it's given by one and only, and that's God Almighty. God later confronted Job in the whirlwind to provide this much-needed wisdom. He gave it to Job. Sit and listen, gird up your loins, prepare for action. I'm going to give you and depart and impart to you this wisdom. For Solomon's part, God visited him in a dream and asked what Solomon would request. He is the giver of this wisdom. And notice the context of Solomon's request. If you're looking down at your passage, we read one through five very intentionally in 1 Kings chapter three. He had just formed an alliance with Egypt. Any history there to speak of for the Hebrews? They were what? enslaved by Egypt. And God even says all throughout the prophets, do not lean on Egypt. They're like a a flimsy reed that they'll snap and they'll pierce through your hands. Don't go back to Egypt. He's constantly calling his people away. What's one of Solomon's first things that he does? He goes to Egypt to form an alliance. He'd then gone to the idolatrous high places that God also had endlessly and clearly forbidden in his law And it seems as though he himself was offering up burnt sacrifices to an unspecified amount, so on and so on and so on. What was his saving grace? What was Solomon's saving grace if he was doing it all wrong? Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David. His missteps were from a lack of knowledge. (laughs) And that's certainly the, the case. They weren't from a lack of love, And what does he humbly admit that he needs? I'm just a young boy. I need wisdom. I need knowledge. Maybe that's where you find yourself today. Maybe not a young boy, but maybe in need of knowledge and wisdom. You're doing everything. You're not doing everything right, and you're making a whole lot of mistakes along the way. Do you love the Lord? 
Have you done that which is necessary, as Pastor Reader had said beforehand? Have you come into a relationship with Jesus? And are you trying to walk with him as Lord? As James 1 would say, if any of you lacks this wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, it will be given to him. If you love him, he's happy to give the gift generously and in abundance. Are you ready for a challenge this morning? If it's not already a habit of yours, I would challenge you to ask God for wisdom every single day. Ask him for wisdom. Every, do you value wisdom? Do you love wisdom? Do you see the necessity of it in your own life? Do you see, just as the psalmist says, as the, the writers of the Proverbs say, that it is to be searched and sought out far beyond gold, silver, anything that you would want, wisdom far surpasses that. Do you ask for wisdom every day? And if not, I challenge you to do so. It can be um, with uh, exact purpose. It can be um, very specific. You can say, Lord, please give me wisdom in these set of circumstances. It can be lengthy. Lord, I would want wisdom in order to, like Solomon does, in order to judge your people as he, within his context, says, Lord, I love wisdom in order to parent well. I love wisdom in order to navigate this area of my life well. Or it can be broad and very um, terse. You can just say, God, please grant me wisdom. And by the way, I timed that prayer in my office two seconds. Do you have two seconds to spare in your day to ask God for wisdom? I sure do. So I would challenge you to ask him. In the latter half of James 1, 5 came to pass for Solomon. God graciously granted him wisdom in unparalleled abundance. And how did Solomon, for his part, initially utilize that wisdom? For the exact purpose it was requested, to judge God's people and discern between good and evil. Thus, wise decisions lead to blessing for you and others. On its face, requesting that a baby be cut in half doesn't sound very wise, does it? Not at all. For our trained medical physicians in the congregation, what happens to a person if you cut them in half? Anyone a trained medical physician? I'm not trained, but I think I've got a two-word response to that. They die. <laughs> That's what happens to a person when you, when you cleave them in half. And I'm sure most of you know the narrative, but right after that gift of wisdom is granted to Solomon, he's approached by two prostitutes. So starting in verse 16 of 1 Kings chapter 3, then two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I, we live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. It happened on the third day after I gave birth, birth that this woman also gave birth to a child, and we were together. There was no stranger with us within this house. Only the, the two of us were in this house. This woman's son died in the night because she lay on it. She arose in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your maidservant slept. And I and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead son in my bosom. When I rose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other mother said, no, for the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. But the first woman said, no, for the dead one is your son and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, this one says, this is my son who is living, and yours is the one who is dead. And the other says, no, for your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. What is he going to do? That's quite a predicament, isn't it? How's Solomon going to respond? The king said, give me a sword. <laughs> not, not what you would expect. So they brought a sword before the king. 
The king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Is that a wise edict or a foolish one? That's pretty foolish on its face, isn't it? Cut the baby in half. What's going to happen to that baby? Then the woman, whose child was the living one, spoke to the king, for she was deeply stirred over her son and said, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other one said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide. Just one word in the Hebrew. Divide. Then the king said, give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is the mother. What an incredible narrative. This narrative speaks to the nature of of wisdom, the mechanics of wisdom, as well as the results of wisdom. And let's use this narrative to first look at the nature of wisdom. The sort of knowledge that we're called to embody is unlike that of the world. The nature of worldly knowledge is limited in its capacity and it's undermined in its purpose. Again, it's worldly knowledge is limited in its capacity and it's undermined by its very purpose. Its capacity is limited by the intentional neglect of God, thus it cannot transcend matter, physical matter, nor can it transcend human knowledge. Its capacity is stymied. In other words, worldly wisdom is a flightless bird. It's still a bird, sure, but it can't do what a bird ought to be able to do. It cannot take flight. Additionally, it's undermined by its purpose. Worldly Knowledge, worldly wisdom is undermined by its purpose. True knowledge, if you remember, is intended to lead a life of godliness. That's the purpose of true knowledge. But Paul highlights the nature of worldly knowledge in 1 Corinthians 8. We know that all of us possess this knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but what does love do? Love builds up. The purpose of worldly knowledge is not to know for the sake of edifying others. The purpose of worldly knowledge is to simply know more than you. That's how I'm puffed up as if you're deflated and I know more than you. That's how I am greater than you. That's worldly knowledge. That way I can be better than you. Do you see where there could be issues with worldly knowledge? And do you see manifestations of it permeating throughout our entire culture, maybe even our own lives? In the narrative that closes 1 Kings 3, Solomon shows the antithetical nature of true knowledge in a number of ways. Number one, true knowledge listens. True knowledge listens. Imagine the scene for a minute. It would be like a, like a daytime television show. You've got two harlots coming in and they start squabbling one after another right before the king. It's even like how it's phrased in the, in the passage we just read, kept repeating that they were doing this before the king, before the king, before the king, acting incredibly inappropriately and without total abandon. But what does Solomon do? Does he squash him and say, you shall show some semblance of Restraint in the presence of the king. No, Solomon just listens. He listens to their case. And that's what we ought to do as well. We ought to listen. True knowledge listens. We also see that true knowledge transcends. This is a difficult, this is a difficult one for sure. Solomon didn't get lost in the details, but he sought to discern the heart of a mother. What would draw out the heart of a true mother? What would they value? What would, a, what would a mother value and how would I use that in order to discern who the true mother is? Also, what would draw out the heart of the type of person who would unintentionally kill their child 
and then in that same night steal another person's child and pawn it off as their own? What would draw out either of these hearts? What was he doing? He was transcending the current narrative. He was trying to think deeper as well as higher than what was actually the the line of conversation that was happening. True knowledge in that sense transcends what is happening in that time and place. We see also that true knowledge sacrifices. He's selflessly engaged in this dynamic conflict rather than selfishly excusing or making a safe judgment off of this. He could have just said, get out of here. This isn't my issue. He could have just given some sort of pat response and just say, give the child to one another. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. He could have done anything, but he engaged with that. He sacrificially got into a mess and engaged with that. Where might you or I fall into this area by these definitions of true knowledge? If true knowledge listens, are you careful to listen when others speak? And one way to assess that is, do I find myself interrupting quite often or do I assess when somebody else is talking? Do I typically listen and try to think through what they're saying? Do I listen or do I cut off? Do I interrupt? If true knowledge transcends, do you look past the details of a matter or do you get caught up in rabbit trails and spend time spinning your wheels on needless specifics? In other words, do you listen to just what they're saying Or do you listen to how or why they're saying something? Do you listen in a transcending sort of way? And if true knowledge sacrifices, do you give of your time and comfort to others for their sake? Or do you get easily annoyed and either give up or give easy answers? In other words, do you engage with people or do you disengage with others? This is too hard. I don't want to have to listen to you. I don't want to have to do this. And you squash other people, push them out, just disengage with others. But what's more... We see how true knowledge ought to work in this narrative. It's mechanics. True knowledge is unconventional. We see that all throughout God's word. Do you want to hear how to tear down a fortified city? Walk around it a bunch of times, and on your last lap, yell really loud. That's how you tear down a fortified wall. Want to kill the warrior giant? Send the 15-year-old with a bunch of little stones. That'll kill the warrior giant. Or here in our, our narrative, you want to see who the mom truly is? Threaten to cut the kid in half. Or what we learned about last week, do you want to gain control? Relinquish it to God. Do you want to gain your life? Lose it for Christ's sake. Do you want to be the greatest? Be the servant of all. The gospel itself is folly to the Greek and a stumbling block to the Jew. Likewise, the mechanics of true knowledge will make no natural sense. We see example after example of this. If a husband wants to lead his family better, Wisdom dictates he must sacrifice more. He must give more. Or if a man or woman decides to grow in knowledge, he or she must ask. In short, true knowledge and true faith requires faith, a rested assurance that God, rather than you, is capable of handling the matter. Solomon, in seeking to work out true knowledge, trusted that God's promise to grant him wisdom had come to fruition. He was relying on God and his promise of wisdom in that narrative we just read, which leads to wisdom's results. Remember, all of this is for the purpose stated in 2 Peter 1, 4 through 5, true knowledge will lead to growth in Christ. And with that, true wisdom will also edify other people in the process. Justice was certainly executed in the instance of these two women, the careless and heartless woman left without her child while the innocent party left with her baby boy intact. And this will inevitably lead to God's glory as well as um, wisdom is designated for this purpose, to bring glory to God. 
the prior passage closes with this remark. So after they had just gone through that incredible bout of wisdom between the two harlots, the text says this. Now when, the, now, uh, when all Israel heard the judgment that the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Though it was Solomon speaking and handing down his judgments, it was God who was getting the glory for all of it. This was seen later in his life when he was visited by the Queen of Sheba. When the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to him to test him with difficult questions, and she goes on to ask him a a various amount of them. Then she said to the king, it was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. What does she go to then? Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel. He is the one dispensing the wisdom. God is the one getting the glory. A surefire test to see if you yourself are expressing true knowledge or worldly knowledge is this. Who gets the glory? Who gets the glory? And the obvious conclusion is if it's true knowledge, God gets the glory. If it's worldly knowledge, you get the glory for that. But allow me to push this test a little bit further. If you're convinced that you exercise true knowledge, in other words, God is the one getting the glory in your life, then let me ask you, do the people around you know about Jesus? If it is, in fact, God getting the glory, if it's true that this type of knowledge ought to characterize the Christian, as Second Peter talks about, then it goes to show that you will display this kind of knowledge wherever you go, for if you're a Christian, then you'll always be where you are. We are not, uh, you know, we are bound by space and time. So then it has to, has that led to conversations with coworkers? Has that led to conversations with classmates, conversations with friends and family? The manifestation of true knowledge will bring glory to God. Worldly knowledge will only be concerned for self, as Paul warned about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But we recognize that wise people can sometimes make foolish decisions, can't we? Remember how our initial passage revealed the heart of Solomon. 1 Kings 3a said, Solomon, for his part, loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David. We then saw that this request for wisdom resulted in powerful judgments that are uncommon to the natural man. After that, we flash forward to chapter 10, where the Queen of Sheba gave glory to God for this vast amount of knowledge. But if you turn a single page over, we see this in 1 Kings 11. Now, King Solomon loved who? Many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, his heart, and the significance of that is they would have drawn their heart away from Yahweh. They would have directed it towards idols. His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God and the heart of David as his, the heart of David his father had been. I intentionally left up these two passages on the same slide because I want you to see the contrast between the two. In the beginning, David, or Solomon rather, loved the Lord. Who is he loving in that latter part? And in the end, he's following in his father David's footsteps. Whose footsteps is he following in the end there? Not his father David. Solomon began by loving the Lord, leading him to ask God for wisdom to shepherd his people. This resulted in a wise and sacrificial servant for the flock of God, bringing glory among the nations to the Lord. Yet sometimes that glittery glory can look pretty good, and our our hearts turn from the gift giver towards the gifts themselves. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord for the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods but he did not observe what the Lord commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, 
because you have done this, you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Solomon endured great loss through his series of foolish decisions, and the implications of these decisions were generational. But what binds us to true knowledge, brothers and sisters? How do we ensure that we stay in step with godly wisdom leading to sanctification and God's glory, as Second Peter would call us to? How do we stay affixed to this? I think our passage makes it obvious. It's through our affections, what we are loving, what we are looking to. When we're loving the Lord and humbly asking Him for wisdom, that shows that humility, that shows that dependence. It also shows that focus on Him and our affections fixed on him, then he's gracious to grant the request. After all, he, for his part, is a God who keeps his promises, as Solomon would eventually find out. But he'd also find out that the gods he was affectionate towards could not keep their promises to protect and to provide. Yahweh is the one who does and is able. But remember, we're walking through our study to learn, based out of 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7, how to live in hope by becoming partakers of this divine nature. So does Peter have anything to say? We've talked a lot about Solomon. Does Peter have anything to say about this true knowledge? Well, look at some of the verses in context of our passage for this morning. We see that Peter says in 1-2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Or in verse 3, right on the next one, it says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. Who's that him? It's Christ who has called us by his own glory and excellence. And then right after our passage in verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true, here's that true word, knowledge, the knowledge word of whom? Of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is Peter stirring our affections towards? Towards Christ, that we may have the necessary true knowledge. Another form of knowledge is used in verse 12 and in verse 14, but what do you notice about this knowledge? It's all about knowing Christ. Knowledge without Christ is a flightless bird. It may be pretty, it might look like all the other birds, but when it flaps its wings, nothing happens. Not so with true knowledge. Revisiting Job, God asks of him, and we'll say it in the King James, Doth the hawk fly by thy wisdom, O Job, and stretch out her wings towards the south? In other words, Job, is it by your wisdom that the hawk soars? The clear answer is no, for it's only by Christ's enabling that wisdom takes flight. So ask for wisdom, and I challenge you to do so daily. Serve others by sacrificially applying that knowledge. This will bring inevitably glory to God as you ground your affections firmly on the giver of wisdom, a wisdom that cannot itself remain grounded. Let's go to our great God in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom that you do give us. I ask for wisdom now for myself. I ask for wisdom on behalf of the brothers and sisters here in this room. And Lord, for those who may not have committed themselves to you, to call you Lord, I pray that they would do so even this morning. I pray that your spirit would be stirring them up unto salvation. They would see Christ as beautiful, this giver of true knowledge, of true wisdom, 
and understanding. I pray that they would bow the knee to you. Father, I pray that for those of us who have committed ourselves to you, that you would lead us in knowledge and wisdom and righteousness. We would use it not to puff up, but to serve, to give to others, and that all of this would bring glory to your holy name. We ask this in Christ's beautiful name. Amen.